I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, New York Times columnist, and founder of the American Project, Robert Kuttner. His new book is The Stakes, 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy. The 2020 election is a key moment in the history of American democracy, where the United States can choose to correct course, installing a new chief executive and legislators that will defend bedrock democratic ideals and freedoms. Or it can travel further down the road of Trumpism and allow nationalist populism, racism, and predatory kleptocracy to solidify into a fully realized and durable new American culture. Robert Kuttner makes the forceful stand that, aside from the daily media-baiting hijinks and outrages, the Trump administration has seriously eroded many of the bulwarks of American-style democracy. The damage can be reversed, he says, but it's not enough that Democrats beat Trump. They must win and govern as economic progressives. He's a former columnist for Business Week, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and current columnist for the New York Times International Edition. Welcome to the show, Robert. Well, uh, Nice to have you on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, as you said, your book just came out yesterday. I started to say before we got on the air that I found it depressing, not your book, but the whole situation. And you said to me, no, it's not really, it isn't depressing. I think that there's a real optimism. So maybe we should talk about that because as I understand, (laughs) let's be optimistic. Yeah, go ahead. Well, this book is one part uh, justifiable alarmism and one part real hope. So let's let's do the alarmism first. I mean, obviously, if Trump were to get reelected, he will finish the job in four more years of destroying what's left of American democracy. And I spend the first third of the book talking about all the ways that Trump has undermined democracy and all the things he could do that he hasn't figured out quite how to do yet if if he gets four more years. And and you can see how this works in other countries where far right dictatorial presidents have gotten elected. I mean, you, you take over the courts, you govern by decree, you clamp down on the free press, you take agencies that are supposed to be technical nonpartisan agencies like the IRS or the FBI or uh, the National Security Administration, you make them your personal hatchet men. And Trump has been making inroads. You, you also make it very hard for the uh, opposition party to function. You undermine the rule of law. And we've sort of seen the the first phase of that. But there's a resilience to American democracy. He has failed as often as he has succeeded when he's tried to govern like a dictator. Uh, The courts are increasingly taken over by Trump allies, but not totally. So just yesterday, uh, the state courts in North Carolina threw out uh, the uh, map of uh, districts for the state legislature that had been racially gerrymandered. And even though the Supreme Court said there's no federal standard on this, they did leave it up to the state courts. And this is a fairly conservative state, but you had a panel of um, two Democratic appointees, one Republican appointees, saying that um, the uh, district lines for state Senate, state state assembly, were, uh, were gerrymandered on racial grounds. And given the fact that that state is divided evenly between Republicans and Democrats, if you look at actual voters, this this means that there's a chance that the whole politics in North Carolina could be upended. So even though Trump has tried to govern like a tyrant, 
some of what Steve Bannon calls the deep state uh, is still intact. And I think most hopefully it was intact enough in the elections of 2018 that the Democrats uh, took 43 Republican seats. They lost three of their own. It was a net gain of, of 40. And a lot of those were seats deep in Trump country where uh, non-white candidates won districts that were less than 10% white. So, you know, that has to give you a sense of hope. And I think I have a chapter in the stakes called uh, Mobilization Meets Suppression, or I guess it's called Suppression Meets Mobilization, which ticks off all the ways that Trump and his allies tried to suppress the vote and all of the ways that this amazing mobilization that took place in, in, in the 2018 midterms was able to counteract that. So I think um, we can beat this guy. I think enough of American democracy is intact that it's possible to beat this guy. But we have to have the right appeal, the right strategy, the right themes, the right narrative. And that's what the other half of the book talks about. Yeah. And one and, and I guess maybe I, I don't know if I said this in the opening, but what you say is, that not only do we have to elect a Democratic president, but it has to be a progressive Democratic president, not yes, just a centrist. It's not going to work if we elect Amy Klobuchar. <laughs> I mean, or um, most of them, or I, I think most of the candidates are centrists. Are we talking about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? Um, well, before I get to the candidates, um, let me talk about the strategy and the narrative because, um, you know, the, the, the book doesn't really get into great detail about handicapping the race, this candidate versus that candidate. I mean, obviously, given my views, I'm sympathetic to, to Warren and to Sanders, but let me say a little bit about why I think the theme has to be economic populism. If you ask the question, where did Donald Trump come from? How could somebody this certifiably insane and this uh, racist get elected president. Um, you really have to go back 30 or 40 years and appreciate the fact that for white working class America, living standards and life prospects and hopes for one's children have been going down the drain, maybe since the 1970s. That when, when Trump talked about <clears throat> make America great again, he was really addressing a mashup of economic grievances and cultural grievances and racial grievances. And as I write in the book, um, he was he was invoking a time when if you were a white working class uh, citizen, you could get a good uh, blue collar job that would allow you to buy a nice house on one paycheck and uh, go home to a traditional wife who would be serving you a hot supper and African-Americans knew their place, and immigrants were people who harvested the crops and then went home. So there's a blend of cultural grievance, status grievance, and economic grievance that Trump packaged as a kind of economic nationalism and dog-whistle racism. And here's Hillary Clinton, meanwhile, the Democratic standard bearer, taking speaking fees of $500,000 each from Wall Street and wearing her identity issues on her sleeve. And so this was a perfect storm. It was an accident waiting to happen. But I think the long-term sources of that accident go back well before Trump. Uh, democracy had been weakened. Democratic presidents had 
stopped standing up for working people. They cared more about Wall Street and Davos than they cared about Dubuque. And working people noticed that, and they were just angry, and they were so angry that they felt the heck with it. Let's just blow it all up and get somebody completely different. So I think the way you take that back is to be more plausible than Trump on how you have an economy that delivers for regular people. There's another reason why you have to do that. If you don't do that, then all of the potential racial schisms in the Democratic coalition come to the fore. And if this election is defined on the basis of race, Trump could repeat in 2020 what he did in 2016. I mean, I, I got famous for 15 minutes in, the, in August of uh, 2017 when then White House strategist Steve Bannon called me. He had read a column I'd written on China, <clears throat> partly agreeing with Trump. He called me to say how great it was to meet me and how much we agreed. And I said, well, wait a minute. We certainly don't agree on, on race. And he said, the Democrats... I want them talking about race every day. I want them talking about identity because if the Democrats talk about identity and race and uh, we talk about economic nationalism, we win. And that's true. So on the one hand, um, Democrats have to be very respectful of the racial reckoning that is going on in this country. And at the same time, they need to make the election about how to transcend that and identify areas where black voters and Hispanic voters and white voters have a lot in common, and the common enemy is the richest 1% or 2% that are making off with the whole economy. That's how you take it back. That's how you keep Trump from making the election about race. But what about the rhetoric that you, and it's, it's, always, it's on the media every day, the economy's doing great. I mean, you know, you turn on your television, uh, and that's all you hear. Well, the economy's doing really well, and people, ordinary people, don't necessarily seem to question that. Oh, I think if ordinary people compare are, that statement, yeah. go ahead. You know, the the bottom eighty percent, let's say, you compare that statement with your own life when you are one or two paychecks away from being broke, when your kids can't afford to buy a house, when your kids have to go into debt to go to college, when your health insurance is unreliable, when you're locked into your present employer for fear of losing your health insurance, when uh, jobs are becoming more and more temporary gig jobs rather than permanent payroll jobs. The disconnect between the statement that the economy is doing well on average and the way ordinary people experience their economic frustrations, I think is huge. And it's there for a democratic candidate to narrate. So we have to get out and vote. This is a, a quite, I mean, if you're saying there is a huge disconnect between what your actual, the ordinary person's actual lifestyle and actually, and what they're telling us or what we hear or what we even read about in the newspapers, so is that disconnect big enough to, or I, I guess to really make a difference in who people go out and vote for? Well, that, to, as you that's, say, why, yeah. that's why the nominee is so important. If the nominee can narrate that and touch that and connect it to some major, major changes in uh, how we run the government, 
then I think uh, the Democrat can win the election. I was interviewing Senator Sherrod Brown the other day, and um, he was saying that the Democratic theme for working class people needs to be Trump has betrayed you. Trump made all these promises about helping the economic condition of regular people and he didn't deliver. So he talks a good game on trade, but he hasn't brought back more than a trivial handful of factory jobs and wages are up a little bit on average, but it's harder than ever to get a payroll job with, with good benefits. And people know that. And I think the reason that Warren and Sanders are so compelling and why they would be effective as uh, the nominee is that they tell that story in a convincing way that I think ordinary people can say, yeah, that describes my life. Whereas the centrists, I mean, Biden in particular, if the idea is to go back to normal, normal wasn't good enough. Normal was what brought us Trump. And I think that's the big difference between uh Biden and some of the other centrists and the progressives in the race. And I don't even like the word centrist. I think the more accurate term is corporate Democrat. You, you have Democrats who were enablers of the deregulation of Wall Street that wreaked such havoc on ordinary people. Uh, they saw globalization as some kind of a cure-all when really globalization was all about deregulating the economy and getting rid of labor and environmental protections. So I think the election is, is there for the taking. I think the democracy is sufficiently intact. The, the election is going to happen. Trump is not going to succeed in cancel the, canceling the election. He's going to fiddle with a lot of votes. So we probably have to win by three or four points uh, to, to win beyond the margin of theft. But I think that's doable. And I think everything depends on getting the right nominee with the right message. So that's my next, I guess that was my next question. So how do we do it? I mean, to be honest, I guess I'm, I am being honest, but, you know, we have Joe Biden, who's in the past, to me, in the past century, uh, way ahead of, if these statistics are correct, way ahead of, of, of the other candidates and, you know, the Democratic Party is supporting a Joe Biden. Why is that? Uh, I think those statistics are wrong, by the way. I mean, the, the, the most recent polls show that Biden is really sinking and that his support is mostly name recognition, that he's not doing well on the campaign trail, that he's befuddled, that he's not very good off the cuff. And I think by the time of the Iowa precinct caucuses and the first primaries, uh, he'll be lucky if he's still in it. I mean, he is sinking at a very, very rapid rate. We're going to see this on display at the next debate, which is the first debate that has Warren and Sanders and Biden uh, all on the same panel. I mean, there's down to, down to 10 uh, candidates. I hope it boils down to three or four fairly quickly. But um, if I were a corporate Democrat and my guy was Joe Biden, I would be really nervous because this guy is peaked. And I think a lot of the um, support the nominal support among African-Americans for Biden is a kind of halo effect of Barack Obama because Biden was Obama's uh, vice president. But on race, Biden hasn't been all that much of a liberal. So um, I, I don't think Biden's going to be the nominee, and I would be surprised if he even survives the first primaries. I, you know, I asked you, I think this was off the air, but 
you teach at a university, you teach at Brandeis University. Uh, what's the response? You know, that's what Generation Z, the 18 to 22 year olds, what, what's their response? Uh, and because I know that this group doesn't even go out and vote, I guess, traditionally, or they didn't in the last election. So um, give us your... Well, the, 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 the really encouraging thing about 2018 was there was a huge increase in the turnout of young people, and two-thirds of it was to vote for the Democrat. And I think young people look at Trump and they see their prospects, their future going down the drain. Uh, so if ever young people were going to be motivated to vote, uh, it's, it's in 2020. I teach at a, at a university, Brandeis University, in a graduate program in social policy that uh, advertises itself as uh, knowledge-serving social justice. So the students that I get are pre-selected to be politically engaged, so I don't think they're a representative sample. But that said, if you look at the numbers, the, the enormous uptick in turnout in, um, in 2018 relative to the last uh, previous midterm in 2014, uh, an enormous uptick, and I think you're going to see even more interest in the race in 2020 among young people and among people generally. I mean, the, the way to do this is to give people a reason to come out and vote. It's not just enough to, you know, knock on doors and say, hey, your civic duty is to vote. You have to give people a reason to believe that voting and electing a progressive Democrat is going to change their lives for the better. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm sort of going flipping to the end of your book, but you talk about it in the very end of the book, I guess last chapter, a few big themes. And maybe is that what you're yep. talking about? Yeah, let's cover. Let's talk. Well, one of you talk about reclaiming nationalism. Well, I, you let's know, talk about that. One of the challenges is for the new president to deliver something tangible in the first two years, because otherwise you're at risk of losing your majority in Congress. So if you take Clinton, um, Clinton gets elected in 92 and uh, has a really rough first two years, uh, loses 53 seats in the House, uh, and Democrats lose their majority, and then that's the record loss until Obama comes along. And in his first midterm election, 2010, the Democrats lose 63 seats. So... Assuming that a Democrat gets elected and um, we take back the Senate, which I think is definitely possible, um, you know, the new president has two years to deliver something. So I suggest let's have a few big themes. Let's let's have a massive infrastructure program that can start to bear fruit in the in the first two years. Call the Green New Deal or call it something else. But I mean, America's infrastructure is a disgrace. And that creates lots of jobs. That creates good jobs. It creates economic activity. Let, let's have a new deal for the young, where young people who have to be burdened with debt to go to college, uh, who can't afford starter homes, uh, let's, let's get decent jobs for young people. So let's deliver on that. Let's deliver on a $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, so you have a few big themes that, that actually bear fruit in the first two years, then the Democrat has a chance of uh, cementing her majority in 2022. The only Democrat who's done this in the last century, by the way, was Franklin Roosevelt. So Roosevelt gets elected in 1932 by a pretty nice margin. 
and then gets reelected uh, and then um, gets reelected by a landslide in 1936. But meanwhile, in 1934, Roosevelt's first midterm, the Democrats actually pick up seats in the House and in the Senate. So that's the role model for the next Democratic president. And who's going to do that? <laughs> well, I think Warren or Sanders. Yeah. I mean, I particularly admire Elizabeth Warren. I think uh, she has a really deep understanding of how American capitalism works, uh, even more than Sanders, who, you know, brands himself as a socialist. But I think Warren has the deeper understanding. I think she's even better at narrating the connection between the policy changes we need and life as it is lived by ordinary Americans. And she's got a great personal story where, you know, she was a working class kid from Oklahoma who uh, went to college on a debate scholarship and then her marriage broke up and she was a single mom. And she got to be a law professor the hard way. She likes to say, uh, I was not born a Harvard law professor. And I think the more people get to know her, the more that side of Warren uh, comes to the fore. Uh, and I think probably she stands a better chance of getting nominated than uh, Bernie does, even though I admire Bernie as well. There's one other interesting thing about Warren. Uh, I just want to, I just want to, um, yeah, I just want to ask you about the, I don't know if it's the elephant in the room, but, uh, and I agree with, I do agree with you in terms of who she is and how she presents herself and her credentials credentials and all of those kinds of things, but she's a woman. Are, are we going to elect some, a woman as president of the United States? I mean, that's... I yeah, mean, I, think we, I think we are, and let me, let me explain why. A lot of people took away from Hillary Clinton's defeat in, uh, in 2016, even though she won by three million popular votes, that the country is so hopelessly misogynist that it's never going to elect a woman, and I really disagree with that. All 2016 proved was that the country wasn't ready to elect Hillary Clinton, who was not the best possible standard bearer for her gender. Um, And, you know, here is a woman who was the loyal wife of a faithless husband. Okay? Think about that for a second. Um, That's not (laughs) the most plausible standard bearer for... uh, feminism. And I think she had the worst of both worlds. She tried to wear her feminism on her sleeve uh, while being um, in bed with Wall Street. So Warren is a very, very different creature. And um, Warren's, Warren tells this story of her mother uh, when her father had a heart attack and they couldn't afford to meet the mortgage payments. And she tells this story of her mother, who had never been anything but a homemaker, wrestling on her one good dress and standing in their bedroom, her parents' bedroom, and saying, we will not lose this house, and going, marching down to Sears and getting a minimum wage job. Now, question, is that a feminist story? Well, it's a story about what strong women do. And I think ordinary women who may not consider themselves in-your-face feminists recognize that story and Warren's identification with that story. And I think you're going to see a pent-up gender gap of the sort that was supposed to materialize 
in um, 2016, which didn't materialize because Warren was so, I mean, because Clinton was such a blemished candidate. You're going to see a huge turnout of women if uh, Warren is the nominee to vote for Warren. And the fact that that didn't materialize, the fact that white women, a majority of white women actually voted for Donald Trump, which is almost inconceivable. This time, I think if Warren is the nominee, they'll vote for Warren. I see that. I, you know, and I talk to people and, and maybe over the past probably six months, I see a huge change in, you know, in who people were going, whether it's family or young, I have three sons who are in their thirties, uh, who are really excited about Elizabeth Warren. And yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I, and in people more my the baby boomer age, I see a change. And well, first there was well, she's too much of a socialist, and I we don't you know whatever that is, and so I wouldn't vote for her. But I I see that people are voters, I guess, are seeing her differently, and and don't see her as an extreme, I guess, as, as an extremist as they have described well, her. Well, also in a funny way. The fact that Sanders is there slightly to her left makes her seem more mainstream. And she has to play that very carefully because if she overtakes Sanders, she absolutely needs the support of Sanders loyalists. But I think even though I think she's every bit as much of a Roosevelt radical as Bernie is, she's not quite so threatening. So that's good. Yeah. Well, she wasn't she a Republican at one time? A very long time ago, yep. Very, yep. <laughs> very and long she, time you know, ago. She, she didn't really get seriously politicized until about 20 years ago after she was doing deep research on why families went bankrupt. And the story of the credit card industry was, well, families went bankrupt because they just went on spending bitches. And Warren's research found that, no, they, they went bankrupt because of horrible medical illness that insurance didn't cover or because of the death of a breadwinner. They did not go on spending binges on their credit cards. And that research and the reaction of the financial industry to disparage that research is what really politicized Warren. We only have a couple minutes left. This has been a great conversation, and I really recommend your book. <clears throat> I mean, it is um, it, it's a, it, it's it's. Not just an academic book; it really is for all of us, and I, and it is uh, it, it is a great read. And uh, we only covered a, f- a few of the topics. Obviously, the title of the book is "The Stakes: 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy," and the author is Robert Kuttner. And um, Robert, uh, websites that we can go to to obviously to buy the book, but also to get more information about you and what you're doing. Yeah, I have a website, robertcuttner.com, and I should say. Um, it's the American Prospect is the magazine that I co-edit, not the American Project. Oh, but other no, than that, prospect. thank you for the generous yeah. introduction. The American Pro- Prospect.org is the magazine's website. So uh, I hope people will uh, get the book, take a look at the book. I hope the book has some influence on how the Democrats view uh, 2020. I think it absolutely will. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 